What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush Friday uh, Filmmaker Edition with Ben Harrison of Greatest Gen, Friendly Fire. What else? Greatest Discovery. Greatest Discovery, of course. That's the latest iteration of your Star Trek podcast. Yeah, we're reviewing uh, Star Trek Picard right now. How's that going on? Is is you having fun? Oh, man. I really like the show. Is it good? having a lot of fun watching it. Um, Yeah. I I mean... It's a. Uh, there's only ten episodes of it, and I'm and I think we've, as of this recording, we've reviewed seven, and uh, I'm already sad that we're almost out. So it's a limited series. Uh, I mean, it's this is season one, so it, oh, okay. it's coming back. It's already been renewed, but uh, but yeah, it's like this modern television thing where instead of making twenty six episodes right. of a season, they make ten or thirteen. Yeah, which is, you know, let's be honest, it's not great for you. Sucks for me. It's uh, it's uh, putting me out of house and home. See if we can uh, get some more eps going next season, guys. Speed it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, Star Trek was a uh, kind of a, a limited resource when we started podcasting about it, and it is no longer. They're, they've announced that Discovery is renewed through season five now. Wow. So there, uh, there's a lot of new stuff coming, and uh, and that's good. Now, forgive me, but did you guys ever do anything with all the original stuff? We have reviewed a couple of original series episodes on Greatest Discovery because, especially with Discovery, they uh, they go back and reference things mm-hmm. from 
uh, past episodes because I guess Discovery is set a little bit before the events of original series. Oh, no shit. It's a prequel? Yeah, it's kind of a prequel. Did and, not know um, that. Uh, well, so, yeah, seasons one and two are a prequel, and then it, uh, through events that I uh, I, I shan't spoil, mm-hmm. the, the next season will not be set in the same timeline. Oh. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, my so interest. we... We, we've gone we've gone back and kind of done our homework on a couple of TOS episodes because that's uh, Adam and my Star Trek is TNG so that's that's where we started. What are all our, these letters? Podcasting. What is TOS? The original series and TNG is the next, next generation. generation. Is this how the nerds refer to it? Yeah, that's how we refer to it, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't start out as a Star Trek nerd. That's not why you did it, is it? I mean, I I started out as a person who really liked Star Trek. I, I okay. Mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't. It's like calling yourself a Christian. You know, it's like it seems a little <laughs> presumptuous. Like I'm not saying I'm Christ-like. I'm saying I like the the works of Gene Roddenberry. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a <laughs> podcast about the Christianity prequel. Okay. Wow. <laughs> it's called uh, it's called the Torah. <laughs> Whoa! Burn. <laughs> Uh, it's called Total Darkness because there was Chuck, nothing else, dude. Chuck, did you just call for burning Torahs? I don't think I can keep on, keep going with this podcast. All right. See you later. Good episode. Uh, we are recording remotely, everyone, because uh, we don't want to die. Yeah, we're, uh, we're socially distancing even in podcast form. Yes, yeah, so we are socially distancing because you are in Los Angeles where you make your home. Yes. With your uh, winsome and charming wife. I, I do. Uh, hopefully, if uh, if our summer hangs aren't canceled due to the virus, you'll uh, you'll get to hang out with her uh, this summer yeah, at the lake house. That's right. That's going to be. Uh, I feel like everything is up in the fucking air right now. It really feels like that. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I'm not like going down the road where I think like, you know, ten million people are going to die. My father's is uh, is saying a billion to anyone who will listen to him. So really? that's really comforting. <laughs> it's funny. I, mean, I just saw. He, uh, go ahead. He's he's like a you know a guy that he's he's like an old guy that watches the television you know the the twenty four hour television news networks yes. way too much yeah, for yeah. health health. So that's where he's getting that number. Well, Ben, there are some people that say a. Uh, a thinning of the herd, as it were, mm. is good for the planet, a, an overburdened planet that we already have. You know what I'm saying? That's a, that's a pretty macabre approach to climate change. Uh, well, no, no, <laughs> not climate change. I'm talking about this pandemic. What are you? You've been talking about climate change. I'm saying, I'm saying, if you're, if if a thinning of the herd is good for the planet, it's it's not good for the people that got thinned. Oh, sure. Okay, I see what you mean. I got you. Well, you know, Bonnie Prince Billy has a song about that uh, that basically says, uh, even when humans are gone, that's still not the end of anything. We just think it is. Yeah. The earth, the earth continues. Right. Should we well, talk about something more uplifting? Speaking, yeah, yeah so let's, <laughs> let's talk about this hell allegory movie. <laughs> This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. 
It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, so we're talking about Barton Fink. This is our continuation, folks, of the uh, Coen Brothers film series. Yeah. Quick side story. We, uh, People will hear we, this. We, we skipped uh, Miller's Crossing and oh, Raising sure. Arizona, right? Because yeah. Ben Acker uh-huh. stole my Miller's Crossing episode. Who stole my Raising Arizona episode? Dak Shepard. You want to start shit with him? Yeah. I, uh, I saw that guy at, uh, at, the, at the fish market one time. Which, which one? Uh, Seattle? It's in Los, Los Feliz. I forget what it's called. Oh, okay. Uh, L.A. Yeah. They probably live around there. They seem like Los Feliz E-types. Yeah. Yeah. I, sh- I should have uh, challenged him to an old-timey boxing match. <laughs> a, a, a pugilist sparring? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marcus of Cre- Queensberry rules. <laughs> I don't even know Played him is. some sweet chin music. <laughs> oh, the guy's got a glass chin. You would have had no problem. <laughs> but i can't throw a punch to save my life Uh, i've never have so i don't even know i've beat people up in my dreams does that count (laughs) hey speaking of dreams let's uh, talk about this dream allegory film (laughs) well before we do i have a quick side story uh i was just on a little um and people of movie crush land will probably hear this twice because i will probably talk about it again on a mini crush but i just went on a little buddy trip uh with my best friend eddie to see to travel to three cities to see Bonnie Prince Billy, same the aforementioned musician, play shows with Jonathan Richmond. Wow. Uh, so we went to uh, D.C., Philly, and New York. And in New York, at the town hall, standing outside, uh, Ethan Cohen, right next to me. No kidding. Which is w- obviously a big one for both of us. Like, huge, yeah. huge level. They'd be like Alexander you... Payne or Paul Thomas Anderson or, you know. 
Do you feel confident that you know the difference between Joel and Ethan? So confident. <laughs> okay, because I don't. I don't think I, I. I think I've seen them in interviews always together. So I don't know that I. That's how they get you. <laughs> yeah, like I, I think I would be like it's one of the Cohen brothers, either Joel or Ethan. Uh, Joel is who the t- tall, dark-haired uh, gentleman married to Fran McDormand. Ethan is the shorter kind of. Um, yeah, I think I know that Afro. intellectually, but my instinct is that it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when I, I I've got their I've got my uh, my biography of the Cohen brothers. Uh, here next to me, written by Ronald Bergen. Oh, is that good? And, uh, it's good. It's it's early. It came out pretty early in their career. Mm-hmm. This is like a a book I picked up at the Strand for like a dollar and a half mm-hmm. uh, back when I lived in New York. And I, it goes up through like not much further past uh, the Big Lebowski. Mm. Um, gotcha. So, uh, but uh, I I, re- I reread the chapter on uh, Barton Fink last night and. Uh, and yeah, there's just a picture of the two of them on the cover, and uh, and I, I I was I was thinking to myself, I, if I ever met one of these guys, I would be embarrassed to mm-hmm. to say I wasn't sure which one was which. Well, you just say Mr. Cohen in your cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I see him out there. I'm not the kind of guy that would. Well, I actually kind of am that guy that would just literally say hi. I love your work, but uh, I was a little inebriated, so I was like, I'm just gonna be cool here. <laughs> um, uh, ten minutes later, I'm in the drink line, and he and his wife uh, are walking by me, and she looks at me right in the face and says, is this the drink line that was really long and I was at the front of? And I said, instead of saying, it is, but boy, I would love to buy uh, you and your husband a drink, just jump right in here. I said, yeah. yep, it's the drink line. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've been mad for three fucking days. Oh man, that was my chance. That was that was your chance. You you could have uh, painted the town red with uh, <laughs> his blood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, you could have murdered, taken him back to your hotel room, woken up next to his lifeless body. Oh, look at you throwing the movie refs in there. <laughs> so anyway, that happened, and I'm sure in his mind, of course, he didn't think about it at all. But in his mind, he would have thought, "Boy, I'm glad that guy didn't." buy me a drink I would have had to make small talk for two minutes with him <laughs> he would have told me about his podcast Yee. I would not have done that I uh that would be the most obnoxious route to take with that conversation don't you yeah. think well it's it's interesting because you your podcast is about being a film buff and I think that this movie is is really like kind of their the peak of their film buffery uh being shown in, in in their work. You I know? think so, like, yeah. This is like incredibly deep cut film nerd stuff that they're referencing here. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, let's just dive in. 1991, um, my uh, story with this film is I saw it in the movie theater uh, with one of my other best friends, Jim. And then um, when it came out on VHS it, when I was in college, my other friend, Eddie, who just went on this trip with us, we probably watched Barton Fink 25 times in the <laughs> couple of years that we lived together. No joke. Wow. That's, uh, that is far more than the FDA recommended allotment. <laughs> it was a big one for us, man. We And you know how it is in college when you have just the VHSs lying around. You've got like 12 of them, so you end up watching right. all those movies a you gazillion memorize, times. Memorize the ones that you've got. Yeah, but it had been a long time since I'd seen it, uh, so it was cool to revisit. What's, what's your story with it? I think it was... It, it was just 
I yeah picked it up at, at the movie rental at one point in in college, and I never really realized what a big impact it had when it first came out. Because I think like Miller's Crossing had not been a huge box office success for them, which is such and a shame. And then this movie went to Cannes and got best director, best picture, and best actor. Yeah, which had never happened before, and it was like one of these prestige films that that really like you know had had a moment in the culture and yeah. i think i was too young in 1991 to be aware of things like that so it just didn't it didn't register for me until i was uh in college later yeah here we go with uh, i was curious about the box office once you said that still not much <laughs> about 6 yeah. mi- 6 million bucks this is before they were household names, though, you know? I mean, they were right. They were certainly the delight of me and my friends and, like, college film buffs and, you know, coastal elites. But they, yeah. they I mean, Fargo is what really broke them open, right? Yeah, well, and I think, uh, you know, the independent film world hadn't hadn't really, like, grown. In the, you know, like, the there were obviously independent films going back to the beginning of cinema but this you know there there wasn't as much of a like an industry around it back then you can go and say it, it was pre-serial <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, it was before serial invented podcasting uh, <laughs> i'm looking at the order here barton fink and then uh hudsucker which we'll get to next yeah um and then fargo fargo was always earlier than i think yeah, because that feels like late Coen Brothers to me because I had seen all those other films. Well, and it was such a break for them too because it's Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker are all these kind of period pieces. Uh-huh. They're about a certain moment in American life. They're about like kind of class signifiers that we don't really have anymore. They're mm-hmm. all these all these like things that are are like somewhat alien to us now, but are are fun to like revisit. Whereas Fargo is just set in the present. Yeah, I mean that was looking now. I mean, Blood Simple is obviously was the present for the time. Uh, Raising Arizona was, but it was also a movie kind of weirdly that didn't feel time specific at all. Yeah, it's kind of atemporal. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, three in a row that were set. Uh, what I mean, what is this? Thirties. Uh, I think it's 1941, right? Because there's the scene where uh, where the the film executive has his uh, right his colonel yeah, uniform yeah. on, and he's like, uh, <laughs> "This hasn't gone through yet. I just had costume with this up." Yeah, and of course the USO dance later. Uh, Come on, give the Navy a spin. <laughs> <laughs> that great scene. Yeah, and that's like that scene is so wild to me because it it's it sort of feels somewhere in between a real scene and a dream sequence. Like, yeah, totally. It, it, there's no, it, there's no warning that he is likely to go to a USO dance. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no context for it. That they, they don't, there's no like you know newsreel footage cut in to like give you, you know, a sense of time where like the U.S. has decided to enter the war or, or anything. He's just, he's just like finishes his script and then he's dancing at a, <laughs> a USO dance. A great dance too. It's that's always been uh, any and I don't dance much at all. But anytime I've had a few and I'm at a wedding or something, I will pull out a couple of the Barton moves (laughs) to the delight of no one. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm a podcaster. Yeah. I do things that are important. <laughs> I plumb right. the depths. <laughs> oh, man. It's so good. Uh, people in brown suits. I remember there was a joke about Hudsucker about uh, something about big and brown. And I think it may have been after these two films, the studio was like, don't use any more brown and scale it back. And he said something about setting out to make the biggest, brownest movie they could. <laughs> I guess brown's not a, a great uh, cinema color. I don't know. I love it. I love it, too. I mean, this this movie really does have a palette, and it it feels like it all, almost, like, inspires some later French cinema with how gross it gets, like the the gooiness of the... Mm. Of the wallpaper glue coming mm-hmm. down the walls, like it feels like. Uh, what's the guy that directed Amelie? It feels like yeah, yeah. If, uh, it feels like he was, yeah, yeah, super interested in walls that were covered in goo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, who did do Amelie? That was one of the the brothers, right? That I just mentioned, Juno and Caro. Am I wrong? Uh, it's the same guy that did Alien Four. Oh Jesus! I just looked up. Amelie, and it was Amelia, the very bad <laughs> Amelia Earhart <laughs> biopic. Jean-Pierre Genet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Because they were the same guys who did Delicatessen, which also had a bunch of gross uh, yeah. moisture. <laughs> yeah, gross moisture is, uh, is really a watchword in their, in their oeuvre. In their oeuvre. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a uh, like an early example of that, as far as I can tell. And uh, and and yeah, very brown, very like, very unpleasant seeming. You sort of wonder like what is, what is motivating Barton because he doesn't, he has the opportunity to move to a nice hotel when he first mm-hmm. arrives in Hollywood and doesn't doesn't take it. But he also it's not because he like doesn't feel like he deserves it or anything. Like he he thinks a lot of himself. Yeah. But and and but he has. I mean, it, and it's it's not this like delusion that he's like, uh, you know, obsessed with the plight of the common man. He doesn't want to live like the common man. He wants to write about the common man. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was uh, I'd seen this movie so many times, and I just kind of know it by heart. And it never really occurred to me until the other night on what a obnoxious character he is. Yeah, I think I just loved right. the movie so much. I didn't stop to think the fact that their protagonist was. I mean, you're, yeah, you're got, rooting for him, but he's awful. He's the last guy you want to be stuck to at a, next to at a party. Yeah, like part of like like John Goodman's character feels super dangerous, but you kind of love him because yeah. he is willing to sit there despite how obnoxious Spartan is. The first like three times they hang out. Uh huh. Like, well, and he says that at the end, you know, th- th- you don't listen. That's yeah. sort of the thing right there. Yeah, he wants to write about the common man, but he's. Just from that distance perspective, I think. Yeah, he's like he's naive, and he doesn't know he's naive. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Like that, he can he can both hold it in his mind that he wants to be the playwright of the common man, but also have no interest in you know, like like he the way he talks to the common man, who he imagines John Goodman is is so dismissive so oh, yeah so uh so insulting yeah i mean he's uh, uh, goodman's constantly saying in that first meeting boy i could tell you some stories and <laughs> and a true artist who is really interested in that would 
immediately reply with, boy, I'd love to hear some of those stories. I could really yeah. help inform my work. Hold on. <laughs> let me grab my notebook. I need I need wrestling stories specifically, and John Goodman has them to offer. Uh-huh. <laughs> Big Ben and tights. Um, it also struck me the other day how funny it is that the Coen brothers at some point, and you know that, I'm sure you know the backstory, but for the benefit of the listener, when they got uh, uh, writer's block, which I just demonstrated, <laughs> uh, when they got writer's block writing Miller's Crossing, they stopped for like two weeks or something and knocked the script yeah. out. Yeah, like this, this ironically was the script that cleared the writer's block for them. They just burped it out, they said. Yeah, some people go on a walk. <laughs> they wrote a movie. <laughs> they write a cinematic masterpiece. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, at some point, um, one of them looked at the other and said, you know, let's write a story about a uh, a big play playwright in New York that thinks a lot of himself that gets moved out to L.A. to write movies, and he moves next door to a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the premise of the film. yeah. The, um, it's, it's very not their, their experience. Like their, I read a, uh, a quote from them saying like, yeah, like we've actually had kind of a really easy time in Hollywood. Like mm -hmm. once we got our first movie done, like we've never had any trouble getting, getting to keep making movies, which, you know, many directors get a few movies and then they have one that doesn't do well at the box office and they get put in movie jail and they never come back. Right. And the Coen brothers, like, very emphatically do, did not have Barton Fink's experience. Like, th this is not a, you know, semi-autobiographical tale by any extent. Yeah, but it is a movie uh, that supposedly was based on, and I didn't know much of this stuff until I kind of dove back in, but a uh, playwright named Clifford Odets, uh, yeah. which I saw, I'm sure you saw that stuff too. Yeah, and and kind of taking a lot of elements out of the timeline because there was this like theater movement in the 30s in New York that has a lot to do with what Barton Fink talks about the the theater of the common man, a vernacular theater that uh, you know would have been really well established by the time the events of this movie take place. But this this movie doesn't really take place in real history, you know. Yeah. Yeah, although they they do pepper it with, you know, thinly veiled uh, characters of of real people at the time. Obviously, well, no one knows. Not many people know about Clifford Odets, but clearly, John C. Mahoney is is uh, William Faulkner spinoff. Right. He even looks yeah. just like him. Yeah, and I think the I think that the movie that he's got on his on the door of his bungalow, Slave Ship, is is the name of a a film that Faulkner actually wrote on. Oh, really? For Hollywood? Yeah. Man, how good is John Mahoney in this movie? He's great. He's uh, he's he's a lot. Like I feel like there's a temptation to take that character and go really big with it. And the only time he's really super big is when he's off screen, when he's like screaming in the in a room that you mm -hmm. can't see him in. Where's Mahoney? Yeah, like <laughs> he's he's pretty subtle, despite um, despite like that temptation. I think I I, I thought that that was. It's one of my favorite characters in the film. Just like, you know, he like he's totally stripped of dignity by the end of it. Yeah, when he's like, you know, it's revealed that he's basically like not even the author that he claims to be. Oh man, W. P. William Phony Mayhew. 
<laughs> so many great lines. And he did write a wrestling movie too. Faulkner wrote a, uh, or at least worked on a wrestling movie called Flesh. Yeah. That starred Wallace Beery, who was the real actor that they said that Barton was writing for. Does So here's a question that maybe you know the answer to. Like, was there in the 30s and 40s like a big market for wrestling pictures? Or is that <laughs> is that kind of like, is that part of the like synthesized reality here? I think it's probably kind of real. I mean, if there was a movie called Flesh about a German wrestler... <laughs> it would not surprise because you know how they were making movies at the time. They didn't. They didn't make a movie. They they were like, let's make seven of these, right, and see what happens, right. And and that's like, like the the executive character that is like, he's so um, he has no like actual respect for the art form. Yeah, you know, he's like uh, uh, Jack Lipnick. He he just talks about. You know, like we got a war picture, a Bible picture, a wrestling picture. Uh-huh. Like, it's 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 just inventory for him. It's 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 he he considers these things to be like basically commodities, depending on who he's talking to or like what part of the sentence he's in. Because yeah. he also claims to you know love the writer above all other right. <laughs> you know, all other creatives. The writer's kissing ki- king at Capitol Pictures. <laughs> Kissing Barton Fink's shoe. God, that's so great. <laughs> One of my favorites. Uh, and he was he was so great. Um, uh, Jack Lipnick, like one of the great characters in all of their movies, I think. And uh, Michael Lerner, just fucking fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I think, was he in, um, it seems like he did something else with them. I know they reuse actors a lot. Yeah, there's kind of the, the Coen brother stable of of actors sure uh, Turturro and goodman here in a, in a pre-lebowski pairing oh i see he came back for a serious man much later in their oh, career Oh, okay that's right yeah uh, and the great john yeah. polito the late great uh john polito who yeah. uh, just passed away a few years ago as lou <laughs> oh i didn't i didn't realize he'd passed that's too bad yeah he i think he died in like 2016 2017 um just and and he was he's been in a bunch of Coen Brothers movies. One of the great uh, character actors, and as as Lou, yeah, used used to own some shares in the company. Oh, no man. longer, so great. But like <laughs> maybe the character with the least dignity of anyone in this yeah. in this film. Yeah, and it's funny because he's the one. He gets so called out in that meeting because he translates what is the correct translation, which is. You know, you're the property of Capital Pictures. You really need to sort of tell us what's going on here. And he's right. Yeah. And he gets sold, totally sold out. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then he's just back in the next scene. Like, yeah. that, that was entirely for Barton's benefit and not real. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we get a very young Steve Buscemi. Um, yeah. It's one of the first times I remember seeing him, I think, is Chet with an exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chet. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I'm just distracted by this cast list. I, I, so many of these people were also in Star Trek things. So oh, always, really? It always leaps out to me. Yeah, the, uh, the guy that works the clapper in the, um, in the, when he gets to see the rushes of the other wrestling picture oh, that yeah, they're yeah. working sure. on. Uh-huh. 
uh, is Max Gradenchik, who played Rom on Deep Space Nine. Wow, <laughs> didn't realize that. Didn't didn't recognize him because he's usually he's usually got a bunch of uh, prosthetic makeup to make him look like a Ferengi. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, a young Taturo as well. Um, John Goodman, fantastic learner. Um, you've got Judy Davis as Audrey, who yeah. just I, I had a, such a big crush on her. Still do. Yeah, she's uh, she's a delight. Um, it's these are all actors that are still with us too. Like the 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 careers have really like developed and grown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think John Goodman was the only like really, really, really famous person in this, right? Yeah, I mean, come to think of it, Taturo. This is sort of before everyone. You're right had had become more household names. Uh, even you know my favorite character in the film is Ben Geisler, uh, Tony Shalhoub. Uh-huh. And it was the yeah. first thing that I had seen Tony Shalhoub in. And uh, my friend Jim and I, Jim got to know him and then hooked me up for a movie crush interview with him. And Oh, cool. And I just fawned. I was like, man, I said, I'm such a fan. But I said, Ben, ben Geisler, Geisler, <laughs> <laughs> is, is one of the great, great all-time Coen Brothers characters. So great. Yeah. Every, both of he the is, scenes are so great. He has so much range, too, because like, he, he can play Monk and he can play like a you know, like a cop or whatever, Mm -hmm. but he, like, this character is, like, is so big and brassy, and uh, he's amazing. Yeah, I think he said that there was just, I think they, the Coen brothers were just like, you cannot go big enough uh, for us in this role. (laughs) So just, just chew it up. And that, that one great opening line when he goes and he rings up Lipnick. Yeah. Or uh, Lou. Uh, hey, Lou, how's Lipnick's ass smell this morning? <laughs> so great. One of the great fake phone calls in movie history, I think. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Real screwy. Yeah. I got this right here. Real screwy. All right, shit, no. All right, shit. Okay, all right, no. It's always the, funny the, to think the about. The use of the word no to mean yes uh-huh. is like is all through this movie. Anytime somebody means yes, they're, they say, no, 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 no. Okay, no. Yeah, they do that a lot. And then Barton also has that great part um, it, toward the end when uh, Judy Davis dies. Yeah. And he goes to the door and he nods yes and says no even. Right. <laughs> they do that re- thing where they uh, – they do recurring dialogue, like repeating dialogue. Yeah. A lot. Was, it's really interesting. That's something that I first noticed in Lebowski, like the way, like the, you know, when he's like watching the TV at the beginning and mm-hmm. uh, George H.W. George Bush is saying this unchecked aggression against Iraq will not stand. Right. And then Lebowski, like two scenes later, is going like, this unchecked aggression will not stand, <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they're they're obsessed with that idea that that like that idea of picking up little kind of memes of culture mm-hmm. and and then repeating them later and uh, it's always it's always a subtle thing but I love it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Chet introduces himself like three or four times in that opening scene. My name is Chet. I'm Chet. And then at the end, he writes his name with the exclamation point and shoves it across the table. <laughs> yeah, Chet. <laughs> <laughs> John Turturro takes the paper, folds it up, and puts it in his jacket. Uh-huh. Like, I'll, ne- I'll need this to remember. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that introductory scene is so great. And this is the stuff that really occurs to me is what puts the Coens in a different realm of filmmaking and in just the reality of a movie is the uh, when Chet is introduced and Barton rings that bell 
and it rings and rings and rings, and you hear the steps coming up from some cellar below, <laughs> and the thing is still ringing, and you think, like, is it even still ringing? And then he bar- he touches it with his finger. <laughs> and it's like his his nail is so chewed up. Oh, like yeah. it's he's got he's got real bad cuticles. Um yeah, I love I the atmosphere that it strikes in that in that first time he's in the hotel is amazing because it's not it's it's not the old Hollywood that we imagine, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't show an exterior with palm trees yeah. and, you know, drop top studebakers it's it's always you're always inside the hotel and despite the fact that the lobby is really cavernous it also Mm -hmm. feels like really like close and cloying and you know when he's in his room he can't see anything out the window there's just like a brick wall out there and you don't you, you know hollywood isn't this sunny open exciting place for barton fink it's it's very it's very closed in and it it's kind of Depicted in the way that New York is often depicted in films. Totally. It totally reads as New York. Um, Obviously, they did a lot of this for the sense of isolation, but, you know, you never see anyone in this giant, giant fucking sort of tenement apartment hotel. Yeah. The lobby's always empty. The hallways are empty, yet there are, you know, hundreds of pairs of shoes down an endless hallway. But the only person you ever see is Chet and uh, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would love to find a hotel that charges twenty five dollars a week. I know. <laughs> I mean, I would put up with the uh, with the wallpaper coming down the wall like that. The twenty five bucks a week. <laughs> I would I would just keep it. I would just I, you know just, like yeah, let it flow. Mi- yeah, yeah. I, I keep a room in Minneapolis. It's only twenty five bucks a week. Who cares? Right. <laughs> um, the way Barton too, or, or and Totoro, the way they develop this character and. Um, his physical traits, you know, he's always kind of hunched over and humpbacked, and he walks with his—is it pigeon-toed? Yeah, where, the, where, the, where his toes point in. Yeah, and I think everything about this was a choice. You know, they I think the Coen brothers are well known for being super, super specific. Like yeah. that finger on the bell was, if not Steve Buscemi, someone else who they were like. We need to get a really nasty finger. <laughs> like all that yeah. shit matters to them. I'm wondering in retrospect. I I interpreted it as bruised, but I'm wondering in ret- retrospect if 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 uh, what I was seeing was shoe polish on the finger. Oh, like like residue from his oh totally tireless polishing of shoes. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. Was there a black smudge or something? Yeah, I mean his finger just looks very discolored. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally shoe polish. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I read that um, Turturro, like, spent a lot of time with the Coen brothers. He spent, like, a month just hanging around them before before they made the film just to kind of get mm-hmm. to get their vibe. And that's a, a, a level of commitment that I really admire, you know, just just develop a working relationship, you mm-hmm. know. Like, that's that's not always easy to do when you're making a film and you might have no rehearsal time built into the schedule or, or anything. Yeah, especially back then. I mean, they this movie obviously had a... They were starting to get some budgets because they made these, you know, pretty impressive period pieces. Yeah, um, but this this film had a third of the budget of Miller's Crossing. Oh, really? Yeah, this was a big uh, down budget for them. 
Well, I wonder if that is one reason they didn't fill that lobby with extras and hmm. went with a more because uh, I mean, there's not a ton of extras in the whole movie except for that USO dance scene. Right. Yeah, that's that is the one. There's not a lot of people around. <laughs> Usually, they're in an office. Yeah. There's a secretary. There's another person. There's Lou. There's Lipnick. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like cheap. No, the way there's there's a lot of you know independent films that don't get the budget to have a lot of extras and and you can you can really feel the the corners being cut and and you you don't in this movie. No, they didn't do a lot of exteriors. That's where you can save. You know, they were clearly holed up on a stage somewhere. Yeah. Um, the the stage that the hotel interiors were built in, that were the you know the hallway and and his room was the uh, the hangar that the Spruce Goose was originally in. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, apparently the like it, it was a real challenge to build this set because all of the walls were wired with like gas lines that could be individually turned on and off so that, you know, when Goodman is running down the hallway, they've got guys up on the catwalks oh, yeah. above, like, like turning knobs to, to engage the gas. And uh-huh. it's like some special kind of gas that burns a lot cooler than, you know, wood or whatever. So right. that they can, I mean, they had to rebuild the set every time they did another take, but they, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to like actually kill the actors, right. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they clearly put a little money into that ending sequence with the fire. Um, but even then, they send two detectives. It's not, um, they're not, yeah, they're not, not, they're not, a lot not of, the SWAT team. <laughs> no, and they're not a lot of exteriors with, I mean, there's that one sequence with, uh, with Mahoney and uh, Judy Davis in clearly Griffith Park. Right. But you only see a couple of cars go by, like they're not throwing a ton of money down. To recreate old Hollywood, and that had to have been a conscious choice. Yeah, right. It, it doesn't. It's, there's no romanticism in in the Hollywood that Barton Fink comes to, and it it's interesting because that conversation he has at the beginning, he sort of he's like, "Oh, I don't want to go do that. Like, you know, rub elbows with famous people and mm-hmm. go to fancy parties. Like, that's not what he winds up doing at all. Not at all." <laughs> Like the only like bright and well lit places are Lipnick's office and Lipnick's backyard pool. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it. They they finally did kind of scratch that itch. If they were unable to here with Hail Caesar, they went really big. Yeah, with the the great sort of um, ode to old Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've never really thought of this movie and that one being connected. But I guess they really are, like, similar similar time period and everything. Yeah, I wonder if there's an Easter egg or two in Hail Caesar that I never picked up on. I bet you there is. Yeah. We'll get to it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> what was the name? Oh, the Hotel Earl. Just so many great details, man. And, and I think that's what sets the Coen brothers apart, like the part where he goes into the room for the first time and he looks down at the stationery and rolls <laughs> yeah. the pencil away and there's the spot where the dust didn't settle. Yeah, it's, it's that's the it, stuff that puts them over the top. It's so great. The uh, the like note for the the prop department on that, I would love to read. You know. Yeah, yeah, that um, had to have been a fun prop because you just get a little diatomaceous earth <laughs> and sprinkle it on a, a page until it looks dusty. <laughs> yeah, with like a like a sieve. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and then make sure that pencil doesn't move. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I bet it's you. a hot set. <laughs> 
Um, I, I read that they also um, like that the idea of that of that photograph being like the one piece of decoration in the room yeah. was something that they came up with really early on. Like, like they had conversations like, "What would be in the room? Like, how how would it feel to be in there?" And it it sort of become you know because there's a brick wall outside his window, it's kind of his only his only view uh-huh. to the outside world. And the fact that he never gets to see any other parts of the hotel also, you know, make you feel really isolated in there. But I love, I love the the way that photo kind of becomes his reality mm-hmm. in the end. Yeah, I mean, they bring that back around uh, there at, at Zuma Beach. If you've seen that uh, stretch of beach a gazillion times, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've shot ten TV commercials right there, but it's also, of course, <laughs> very famously. Uh, from Planet of the Apes. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah, that's it, dude. Wow. <laughs> cool. You can tell because of the big rock. There's that big cliff. Right, right. And uh, I mean, that's the only place you can get that look that close to L.A. Yeah. Wow. Otherwise, you got to go up the PCH quite a bit. Damn dirty apes. Well, I don't have time to go all the way up to PCH, <laughs> man. No. Let's just shoot it at Zuma. What is your thought about the... Um, what happens in this film at the end and sort of the the allegory of it all and seeing that woman on the beach and the pelican diving in and do you read too much into that or as what it means? I mean, the, I feel like parts of this I like have picked up from stuff I, I have read over the years and maybe I'm I'm not sure how much I can, take credit for it here but i guess my read is that uh goodman is sort of satan and that okay the like the rest of la are like is is you know it's hell like and and when when goodman is close it gets hot in the hotel Mm -hmm. and uh and i don't know why like you know why the scene at the beach at the end but but Barton's life as he knew it is is over, right? Like the like he's he's stuck in this contract where they're gonna they're just gonna mine him for writing that they don't produce, right? And uh, and somehow he finds himself on this beach with the head in the box or the MacGuffin in the box, anyways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's like he's it's it's like he's trapped in the painting in the hotel room. Like it, he's gone even further in into the trap somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and in fact, now I'm reading, because I was just thinking it would surprise me for some reason if the Coen brothers really had a bunch of intention behind these symbols. Right, um, yeah, I think that they like to and kind I think of that's just... the the case. Yeah, um, yeah um, there's a lot of comparisons made to this, from this movie to Kafka, and... They in this uh, in this biography really reject those comparisons. They're like we're we don't we're not like Kafka people. Like we don't like n- never read much Kafka, and didn't consciously uh, think about him when we were writing this movie. So, um, I th- I think the like the the symbolism is maybe a lot less explicitly connected to anything. And it's it's more open to interpretation than Kafka. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
I think Ethan or Joel said, because uh, they were asking about the symbolism, and he said, we never, ever go into our films with anything like that in mind. He said, uh, there's never anything approaching that kind of specific intellectual breakdown. It's always just a bunch of instinctive things that feel right for whatever reason. Yeah. I think they just have their world that they're comfortable in. Right. And uh, it looks cool to see a hallway on fire. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they definitely create an alternate reality. Some people think this, like, kind of from the midpoint on when it descends into this almost sort of a weird horror movie tonally yeah. is all a dream of Barton's. And of course they they wouldn't say that that's the case, but I think it is open to interpretation. I like that. Um, yeah, like if you sit and think about like the shot where the camera like pans away from the bed and goes down the drain hole oh, in the sink... <laughs> Like you could you could ascribe a ton of meaning to that, yeah, or or you could just let it be like this wild tripped out moment that happens, yeah, that uh, doesn't need to necessarily have that much meaning. Well, I mean, it's it's obviously sort of a not a not because I think their sense of humor is really kind of you know twisted, yeah, uh, and they do things to fuck with people. So having Barton in the other room beginning to initiate the uh, sex. Or I guess Judy Davis kind of initiates it, and then going, you know, the the shot of it's either if it's not the train going in the, into the tunnel, they literally <laughs> take a camera into a sinkhole. But then yeah. from that point on, it gets really weird. All those sounds, yeah, and it sounds like uh, a, 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 I don't know, it sounds like people screaming and stuff. Yeah, like the, like it, it's literally like the the slavering masses in in hell, right? Mm-hmm. It, that's sort of where my head went, anyways. Yeah. Um, this is their first uh, Roger Deakins shot film. Oh, really? That was kind of a curveball that they threw him on set, apparently. Like, hey, so in this scene, we want you to set up pretty far back and then have the camera plunge down the hole in the, in the sink drain. <laughs> and he was like, uh, okay. Right. <laughs> Like, and I don't know, they have like a, I guess maybe it was on our last episode that we talked about what their reputation is like to work with, that they mm-hmm. kind of, they're a little bit standoffish and they'll, they'll just go off and talk to each other yeah, in hushed tones off in the corner and, and that can be a little off-putting, but uh, Roger Deakins apparently just loves working with them and uh, had a ton of fun working on this movie. Uh, one thing he said was that the scenes that they shot in the theater where, you know, it's Barton Fink standing in the wings and then going out to accept his applause. Yeah. Um, they finished that day at 11.30 a.m. because they'd gotten everything they needed and didn't feel like they needed to keep shooting. Really? So they just dismissed everybody from the set. Well, and and, as you know, that is crazy town. <laughs> yeah. Like, like when you get when you get off work, on a film set uh, before the 12-hour mark, you're like, yes! (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just so inefficient to do that. I'm surprised they... Because usually a director will say, well, you know, shit, we got some time. Let's try and pick up something else, at least. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Like, I guess uh, this is film number four for them? Yeah. Maybe they were competent at this point. Is it four? No, it's five, right? Because uh, yeah. Blood Simple, Arizo- Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, 
Oh, yeah. And then this is number four, yeah, right? number four. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, like the more seasoned directors do, like, keep, you know, like, there's there's some famous story about somebody seeing Steven Spielberg in the grocery store and going, like, aren't you making Jurassic Park right now? And he's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, like, why are you picking through the cucumbers? Yeah, like, how do you, how do you, like, how do you also be, like, getting groceries tonight? Yeah, that's weird. And, it's like a nine to five, you know, for for a certain level of success. Yeah, yeah, that is very strange. Um, the sound design in this movie too. You know, the Coen Brothers are very well known for not only their scores, which the score in this is great, but just the sound design, um, the weird choices they make, like the that vacuum sound every time a door <laughs> opens and shuts yeah. in that hotel. Um, yeah, the, there's like different pressure on the on the inside versus the outside of Burton Fink's room. Um, yeah, and I, I I kept turning my TV up a little bit when I was watching this because because especially when he like sticks his head out into the hallway to you know when he hears John Goodman, uh, you know, making strange noises in his room, mm -hmm. like the. Um, that stuff is pretty subtle, and um, if you if you don't have the TV really cranked, you might yeah. miss some of it. Yeah, this is a movie that bears a loud viewing, um, which you can do because it's not a especially loud movie. Yeah, there's no explosions that you're going to have to like reach for the remote and go like, ah, turn it down, turn it down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Did Rachel watch this with you, or uh... no? She was uh, she was at work when I watched it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I kind of wish we had watched it together, though. I think she, this is a uh, has she seen it movie that uh, I'm not sure if she has. I'll have to ask her. Um, um, speaking of the uh, the down the drain pipe scene, there's the other great scene in the USO dance at the very end um, in that slow mo fight. This just yeah. cho choreographed so beautifully, and that camera works its way through it and then into the horn of the trumpet. <laughs> yeah, I love the uh, I love that the that he is like the instigating he's like the catalyst for a fight between the navy and the army uh -huh. too yeah <laughs> <laughs> like once he's once he's on the floor all they care about is beating each other up yeah yeah that's definitely the kind of thing where he's like crawling out on his hands and knees or something <laughs> <laughs> um there's a lot of things in this movie that I still do today like one was the dance thing um, another thing, and this is mainly just for the benefit of my friend Eddie, he's the only person who ever gets any of them, or my friend Jim, <laughs> but, and now you, uh, but I still, anytime someone hands me a flask, I still turn it up for like an impossibly long time. <laughs> and I'm, I might even be regulating the flow. So I'm not taking like a, you know, five shots at once. Right, but right. Just because John Mahoney, when he's in the bathroom, that first meeting, <laughs> he tips it up and you just hear that, <laughs> that little yeah. gurgling sound for like 10 seconds. <laughs> come come by my office later. I've got drinking to do right now. <laughs> Son, you are dripping. <laughs> God, he's so good. Uh, and some of the lines, too, um, a lot of them are, are from Tony Shalhoub, um, just classic Coen Brothers line when he's talking about the... Uh, seeing a writer on 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 the back lot or whatever. Mm -hmm. He's like, Jesus, Fink, throw a rock in here and you'll hit one. And do me a favor, Fink, throw it hard. <laughs> <laughs> so great. It's so good. It's like, 
it is kind of a funny shelf dunk. Like, even though this movie isn't really about them, like, to write an entire movie about, like, about how up his own ass a writer can be. Right. And then the derision everybody else has for for writers when, when he gets to Hollywood. Uh-huh. The, uh, <laughs> I, and, like, even further, like, the the amount of formula that they talk about with each you know with each kind of movie like it's a wrestling picture he's got to like yeah. have a dame or a, or an orphan that he protects yeah, he's like which one you know? button oh bo- yeah. both maybe <laughs> <laughs> which is a dame orphan <laughs> he's got dame question mark orphan uh-huh. question mark written on his piece of paper later <laughs> so good man. and like and like the fact that it is all just kind of paint by numbers like who like it's it's you know you just like fill out the save the cat formula uh-huh. and then write the scenes and uh and and that's really like never how the Cohen brothers have have done their have written their stuff you know like they're they're much more interested in taking it in a totally surprising direction that is completely unlike mm-hmm. other cinema and uh, and I think that that's one of the things that I'm really drawn to with their work is that like you don't feel like you like even when even when their movies follow like a fairly conventional story arc, you know, individual scenes will totally come out of nowhere and and you never know what's coming next. Yeah, their real life and their whole point of view is never real life. Like you said, even if it's set in modern times, there's just something that it's a Coen Brothers world still somehow. Yeah, and we're just living in it, baby. Yeah, man. Uh, and it's a world where, uh, like you were saying, the disrespect to the writer in Hollywood, William Faulkner is a souse. You know, right. he's not a great writer. He's a great souse. <laughs> I love how many times he says souse in that scene. Yeah. Because <laughs> Barton just keeps going, kind of going on, and he just keeps going, shaking his head, souse, souse. <laughs> it's one of the great words, too. And that's good. Uh, good crossword puzzle word. In <laughs> uh, that moment too, where Shalhoub—I mean, I feel like I could talk for an hour just on Tony Shalhoub's two scenes. Um, that moment where he leaps forward onto his desk a little bit. Yeah, where he's talking about uh, never make Lipnick like you. <laughs> <laughs> he's taking an interest. Do you realize what that means? Oh my God, he's so distraught. <laughs> And then when he's like, I really haven't written anything. Who said right? Jesus, Jack can't read. You got to tell it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Jack can't read. <laughs> so great, man. I wish all uh, their movies were about Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, not all of them are, but all of them are kind of. Yeah. You know, like even even when they're not, about Hollywood, I feel like they're kind of about movies. Yeah. Like the, you know, the playing with, with all of your expectations of what a movie can and should be. Yeah. Like, I mean, Fargo feels like a, like, hey, you know, what if we made a hit film about, (laughs) about cops in, what is it, Northern Minnesota? Yeah. Like, like, like a kidnapping it, gone wrong. It's like daring you to not care about this movie. Like, it, it almost feels like a, 
it's it's a it's a issuing a challenge to the audience. Like, right. You can't even imagine that this would be an interesting film, uh-huh. but <laughs> you'd be wrong. <laughs> totally. Um, the the movie Barton Fink just builds this unease kind of throughout the whole thing, this sort of impending doom, uh, yeah. and where it really kind of. Um, ramps up, I think, is obviously the second half, but that screening room sequence with the wrestling dailies yeah, is so effective somehow. Yeah. Like, that he is a guy that doesn't have much experience with, with pictures. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the pictures much. What an alienating experience it would be to just see the raw material from which a film is edited. Yeah, because he's not learning anything about writing a wrestling movie with those rushes. It's all just, I will destroy him, (laughs) over and over. And they start coming at a faster clip, and that sense of unease is just building and building. Because you see his face. He's just like, this isn't helping me. This is making it worse. Yeah, and it's just flesh on flesh. Like, it's so, so, like, gross looking. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty gross. (laughs) Big men in tights. <laughs> hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's talk a little bit about the hotel room scene with Judy Davis uh, when she comes over uh, yeah. to do what she did for Bill so many times. I thought that that was going to be a scene about her sort of becoming his muse. Yeah, same. The first time I saw it. And 
it, it really does not go in that direction at all. I mean, Muse being the most charitable way to describe it, and maybe the fact that she's a woman and doesn't get any respect in this time and place, right. and could be a great writer in her own right, but has to sort of has to sort of get her work out through, like you know, people, the great men around her or whatever. Yeah, um, I'm curious if. Um... That's got to be a true thing. Did was Faulkner accused of having a ghostwriter? Boy, I don't know. I bet you any. I, I bet you anything they got that from real life. I'm curious. I'll have to go back and look later. But um, that scene is it's about seven minutes long. Which, um, if if you've never written movies or made a movie or anything, it probably doesn't sound like a long time. But for listeners, if you're watching a film, kind of kind of think about how long scenes are. Seven minutes is super, super long yeah. for one scene in one room with two people. Right. Like the a scene structure is based on, you know, two characters enter a scene wanting two different things. And, you know, it's like it's conflict resolution writ small the way a, you know, two-hour movie is about conflict re- conflict resolution writ large Mm -hmm. and to spend seven minutes doing that is is pretty audacious i think and uh, it's kind of the central scene in the film aside from the totally the climax yeah i agree because they go so many places in this seven minutes he's he's sort of having an anxiety attack when she shows up and she goes right into this soothing uh, sort of mommy soothes angry child mode. <laughs> and then she lets it slip that she had done this so many times for Bill and that ramps up this big revelation and then he goes berserk and she again brings him back down. Like the the amount of emotional places this scene goes is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, it's also got one of the great lines. Uh, Sometimes instead of a waif, he'd have a the wrestler protects an idiot man child. Studios always hated that. <laughs> Instead of a wave. <laughs> yeah. The uh the the and then like giving into the the sexual tension at the end, despite the fact like the, the film's the, the scene starts with him being under the gun, right? Like the clock is ticking on yeah. him getting something and and by the end of the scene, you don't care about that anymore, mm-hmm. which is an amazing magic trick. Like that, that they're able to hide that tension by the end of the scene. Yeah, I guess because Barton is able to stop and um, perform some coital acts, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you do kind of forget about it. And then I, I guess the very next scene is, well, the next scene is the next morning, and that's when sort of the nightmare begins. Right, uh, but he goes straight from there over to Lipnix, doesn't he? Right, he uh, they they have the poolside meeting, right, and it's kind of the first moment where Barton is a little cagey. Yeah, you know, he uh, he says like, "I'm not going to tell you what's in my mind because I, you know, giving giving voice to these words before they're on the page mm-hmm. could could despoil them." And it's not, I, I guess, uh, I guess. Yudman leaves, leaves the mysterious package in his room. That's when Barton finds the the Holy Bible and finds the 
You ever read the Bible? His own words. Holy Bible? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> so, another great Cohen Brothers thing. Uh, oh, my God. The elevator <laughs> anyways. <laughs> the... And that guy is the, uh, is the evil... Uh, the evil worker in the Hudsucker building. Oh, right. In the next, you know, he's the one that's scraping, uh, wearing Hudsucker's name off of the president's office, and then and then fights the uh, the elevator technician at the end. Boy, I want to think that's the same guy in their world. Yeah, that right. he's just had like... these different jobs. <laughs> <laughs> um. But but this is kind of like when when he starts to be able to write, and I think that like maybe the like the subtlest joke in the in the movie is that this script is obviously just kind of a warmed over version of his play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, which is not like, the case at all. <laughs> <laughs> so so many of the words are the same, like the the fishmongers and everything, and it's just a. Uh, He's like, this is the best thing I've ever written. It's like, a, it's, you know, when a band releases their second album and it's just like, yeah. this is kind of just your first album again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and then the, the reaction from Lerner, like, a uh, little fruity, maybe a little bit for the critics, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want him wrestling with his emotions. I know, I want to know what that script was. I know. That's one of the great, like, unresolved things in the Coen Brothers annals, I think, is what movie did he write? Yeah. The uh, the other very Cohen's uh, sort of subtle joke is when um, Charlie is he agrees to clean up the body that obviously he had killed, <laughs> and and Totoro's in the bathroom and you see him carrying the body out and and just bonks her head on the dresser on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> they have so many little subtle things like that in their films that I, I think this just those are the nuggets that set them apart, you know. Yeah, I you can't imagine that that is something that they come up with in the script phase, right? Like I don't know, man. Their like scripts are like super there's so specific. many little details. Yeah, but like I could see them being on set and be like, you know, it'd be really funny, right. it, you know? <laughs> yeah, just bonker on the head. Uh, yeah. The other thing, it, it, it this midpoint, you know, or not midpoint. I guess it's more sort of the third act. It becomes the plot gets really weird, and um. The cinematically, it gets really weird, and it's such a strange for a. I mean, this was a mainstream movie; it didn't do great at the box office, but yeah. I think this was their effort to make something that people would see. And it's and it takes such right. a strange it's, turn for a mainstream film. It it uh like the the surreality of it starts getting dialed up to eleven in a way that you just don't see like studio movies doing. Yeah, and. Yeah, I mean it's 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 kind of what the movie is making fun of, right? Like the like it's the it's the inner struggle that the movie is kind of preoccupied with mm -hmm. and um you know, maybe even like signaling to the audience like if if you're not here for this, like, you know, if 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 you're not like interested in seeing Barton Fink's play, you probably won't be able to make it through this. Yeah. Like I for sure want to see Barton Fink's play. Oh, totally, dude. Absolutely. Um, you know, and then we get to the end with the, the that's where it really goes off the rails or, or uh, you know, as far as definitely leaving reality is the hallway fire, these two detectives that are so amazing. Uh, 
Yeah. I don't recognize those actors from other things. Maybe the maybe the taller of the two detectives looked a little familiar to me, but I definitely recognize him. Yeah, they're great, and they're they have kind of a lot of the movie on their shoulders. Like if if they don't somehow feel more threatening than John Goodman, like that flip when he chases them down the hallway with the shotgun, yeah. is not going to feel as big. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, it, it, and that uh, that picture too, they show of uh, Madman Munt. Like Charlie's <laughs> such a lovable, affable guy, and of course they went with John Goodman because he is one of the more affable people in the history of movies. Yeah, like his his utility in this is very similar to his utility as as Walter Sobchak. Yeah, which is that he's like he like on paper is terrifying, but you can't help loving him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that photo they really get across so much in that little snapshot. Yeah. Of him in a in a, a a lineup room or whatever, or getting his mugshot, just looking like totally unhinged. So you know that just sets up this whole ending with uh, the 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 shotgun against the forehead and the Heil Hitler. What was that all about? <laughs> I don't know. Do you have a take on that? I mean, just to peg the evil needle. You think? <laughs> it was a weird line. It almost goes by, like, it just, like, it doesn't even, it doesn't make sense. Like, this cop is not coded as Jewish. Like, like everybody everybody in the Hollywood parts of the movie is coded as Jewish. Mm-hmm. And they throw the K word around pretty liberally. Yeah. Uh, but, like, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just, like, the beginning of the war, and he is, like, he is like a source of of evil. Maybe and so. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't indicate at all that he's any sort of a Nazi or white supremacist. Even though those things weren't even linked at the time. Although he right. did play one in No Brother Where Art Thou. Now that I think about it, he was a Klansman. Right, and another character that is like really fun to be around right. until you realize <laughs> what what a nightmare he is. Oh no, wait, um, is he a Klansman? No, he's the Bible yeah. salesman. But is he at the Klan rally too? Yeah, he uh, he's he's the one that says don't let don't let that flag touch the ground. Oh, right? that's right, that's right. And he's got he's got the one hole in the hood because he's a he's the cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till um, we get to that one. That's one of my favorites. Oh man, that movie's great. I mean, that movie and this movie both definitely build a lot from Sullivan's Travels, which is like an old old movie about a motion picture executive who's made a bunch of light comedy films and you know wants to wants to make a a bigger uh you know more ambitious more artistic film called old brother where art thou Mm -hmm. and sullivan's travels is a road film where he like you know finds himself in the depression south and sees that the you know the comedy films that he's made are actually like really meaningful to people and and bring light to very dark times for people yeah and and that that's actually like a it's a, it's actually a worthy aspiration to make uh to make entertainment that is uh just an escape for people and and like oh brother where art thou as a as as the coen brothers road movie comedy depression era film right <laughs> and this movie as their as their like you know 1940s hollywood uh, film both feel like they're really grounded in 
in inspiration from Sullivan's travels. I need to see that. Uh, that was referenced also in Grand Canyon. Um, at the end, with Steve Martin talks about Grand Canyon, or uh, talks about Sullivan's travels. It's one that is. Oh, I don't know Grand Canyon. Yeah, you don't know Grand Canyon. That was um, Danny Glover and Mary Mc McDonnell and uh, Kevin Klein. It was a movie about L.A. and sort of uh, race relations and hu hmm. humans. I think it was. I want to say Lawrence Kasdan. It's a good movie. Oh wow! I'm I'm looking. I'm thinking now on whether or not that movie might age poorly because I feel like it was sort of in the aftermath of the L.A. riots, so it may not exist well today, hmm. you know, since we solved racism. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, that, 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 uh, there was that period where we thought we had solved racism and we realized how, how wrong we were uh -huh. as a society. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, Sullivan's Travels, he, he, he literally says, you know, you ever seen the movie oh, Grand Sullivan? Grand Canyon was the same year as this. Oh, Really? Yeah, 1991. Wow. They don't exist in the same timeline for me, but I guess <laughs> that kind of makes sense. Not a bad movie, though. I just, I'm just i just curious if it ages well. A movie like Barton Fink ages well because it's just sort of timeless like so many of their films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched uh, some, some Lawrence Kasdan movie recently that I just could not get into. I had to turn it off. It was like some, it was kind of like an erotic thriller. And, Ooh, really? And um, I'm trying to, trying to find it here. I don't associate him with erotic or thriller. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, oh, maybe it was Body Heat. Uh, that wasn't him. That was De Palma. Oh, no, yeah, wait. Writer, he no, wrote wait. and directed it. William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking of um, De Palma's Body Double. Oh, okay. Both of those are both yeah. good movies. Both very erotic, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I put it on like one night, and I just, uh, I, I didn't connect to it at all. So, which <laughs> Body Heat or Body Double? Body Heat. I didn't know that was a Larry Kasdan movie. That's crazy. Yeah, weird. Right in the, it, 1981, so like right in his. Right in the same era as when he was doing Star Wars stuff. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a funny, you know, like, I guess like a palate cleanser the way Barton Fink is to Miller's <laughs> Crossing. Like, uh, oh, let me just, like, do something a little bit different. Different. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in the end, Charlie lets Barton go. Uh, I think it was, uh, it could never have been a consideration to kill Barton that would have been a very poor way to end this film. Um, yeah. I think his punishment is to let him live, even, perhaps. Yeah, no, definitely. It doesn't feel like Burton wins anything in this movie. And, and in fact, like, that that beach scene at the end, like, is sort of, is sort of a joke about that, right? Because he's like, he comes straight from Lipnick's office to the beach, uh -huh. where... The feeling is not the the triumph of of or the freedom of of being on the beach. It's the feeling of being trapped in that hotel room. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's funny to think about headlines the next day. You know, and and if this is all real and not a dream, it's like you know, 
uh, L.A. hotel burns down, <laughs> serial killer murders, you know, hundreds of people. <laughs> right. Because it's ostensibly full. Those shoes are always out every night. Shoes are always out. And no one's getting out of those rooms. It's one of the most popular features of the Hotel Earl. Free shoe shine? Free shoe shine. <laughs> uh, and then Barton goes to the beach, and he, you know, this is that great sequence at the end with the box. You know, it isn't mine. Yeah. And speaking of great sound design, I love that moment when he can't hear her at, at first because of the, the surf. Yeah. Like the, I guess it's kind of a hard, hard needle to thread with sound design, like somebody speaking and you can tell that they're saying something, but you can't make it out. Yeah. And like why, so and why do that? so good at decoding the human voice uh-huh. that, uh, you know, like it has to be really distorted. Why? Yeah. And why is she talking to him? Well, because he's... She doesn't need him. He's got in a tweed suit sitting on the beach staring at her. <laughs> <laughs> With a head in a box. Yeah. Clearly. What's in the box? What's in the box? Such a great movie. It was good to see it after all these years, too. Yeah. Uh, holds up great. How did... It, the This may be like one of the great ending shots, second only maybe to Big Lebowski after... That really long one when the guy bowls a perfect strike. Mm-hmm. That pelican just plunking into the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> what? How did they get that? I don't know. I've always wondered about that. Because this was pre-CGI. There, w- there would have been no CGI pelican. No. Um, they clearly added that sound design. Uh... Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a, a boom mic over the, over the water there. I don't know. I'm curious. I bet you there's an answer out there that we could... Uh... We could track down, but, um, or maybe it was just fortuitous and good luck. And the Coen brothers are like, oh my God, did you see that fucking pelican? <laughs> yeah. I kind of feel like it was that way. It might have been. Um, I'm trying to think of FC pelicans on beaches in LA, but now I can count on one hand the times I went to the beach in LA. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. As an East Sider? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I've been to the beach zero times since I moved to Los Angeles. The only time I ever went was when someone came in from out of town that was wanted to go to Venice Beach or something. And Venice Beach is kind of fun. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but the parking, give me a break. <laughs> I know the parking's a fucking bitch. It's terrible. It's the worst. Okay. Uh, since we brought this up earlier, I, uh, I just, just caught my eye in this biography and I, I feel like I, I should get it into the record before we stop recording because we'll get... We'll get uh, we'll get tweets. Delicatessen, I think, was at Con the same year as this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess that all makes sense. Early nineties. Totally nuts. Boy, you saved us. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't the the wetness of the walls didn't directly. Uh, it was just it was just in the in the zeitgeist, you know. Yeah, maybe so. Everybody was obsessed with wet walls. <laughs> All right, buddy, you got anything else? Um, I I don't, but uh, I, I I do want to say thanks for getting me to watch this movie again. Yeah, it had been a while for me as well. And um, what is next, Hudsucker? So we're gonna finish up. Well, you didn't get to do Miller's, but this will finish out. It's okay. Their period. Ben Acker is a, is a great guy, <laughs> and I'm glad that he got it. Yeah, Ben, he he took that one. I don't blame him. Uh, so yeah, so we'll get Hudsucker in the can. 
and then move right on into the, geez, now looking at it, the second half of their career. Yeah, that's uh, some exciting stuff. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and they get a lot more fun, too. Um, Raising Arizona was fun, but I'm really looking forward to some of their undersung films, I think, like Intolerable Cruelty and uh, Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah. Totally. <clears throat> movies I really enjoyed a lot. Yeah. I mean, Hudsucker is like a real all-timer for me as well, so. Oh, great. Paul Newman. I, yeah, I'm I'm super jazzed. All right, dude. Well, thanks for coming on, and uh, I'll hit you up offline yeah. about uh, about Hudsucker. Awesome. Uh, yeah, people can listen to my podcasts at MaximumFun.org or just search for The Greatest Generation or Friendly Fire or The Greatest Discovery in your podcast app. Boy, you're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget that with guests. you got to plug their shit. Uh, you know. Check out Friendly Fire. I'm behind myself because uh, I've been obsessing about other podcasts for a moment. So all of my regulars have built up many, many shows that I'm going to be tackling. Oh, man. Well, we have some some great ones coming up. So Can't wait. Yeah. All right, buddy. Thanks a uh, lot. All right, Chuck. Awesome talking to you, man. All right. See you. Bye. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.